Are you ready to share the gospel of Jesus Christ, or do you find that a daunting prospect? The Lord of the harvest promises to be with you and bless your efforts both here on earth and for all eternity. But how? Welcome to the Busy Christian Podcast. Yes, welcome to the Busy Christian Podcast with me, Steve Griffiths. Whether you are watching the video podcast on YouTube or whether you are listening to the audio podcast on your preferred platform, you are more than welcome. And today we are continuing our series of podcasts on the book of Revelation. And now we are on chapter 3, verses 7 to 13, the letter of Jesus to the church at Philadelphia. And it is a wonderful letter. It's full of encouragement for a group of believers who felt weak and vulnerable as they shared the good news of Jesus. So I think it's got a lot to say to us today. And as in the last few episodes, we're going to have a brief look at the city in which the church was situated, Philadelphia, and then we're going to get into the meat of the letter itself. Well, Philadelphia was a fairly new city, actually, when John wrote the book of Revelation in AD 96. It was built in 189 BC by King Eumenes II, and he had called it Philadelphia, which means brotherly love, in honour of his brother Attalus II. And Philadelphia became known as an administrative district under the Romans, and it was best known for being a sort of regional post office. And it also had a flourish grape industry as well, which was strong because of its location on a fertile plain near the Hermas River. And Philadelphia was a prosperous city, and it was the centre of worship for the god Dionysius. And it was badly hit by an earthquake in AD 17. But the emperor Tiberius reduced their taxation so that they could then rebuild the city. So the people of Philadelphia were very aware, because of that earthquake, of their own weakness and their own vulnerability, despite their wealth from the grape industry. And that sense of weakness and vulnerability was reflected in the church as well. It was a small and vulnerable church, but God had great plans for them. And perhaps God has got great plans for you as well. Even if you feel weak in faith, uh, vulnerable in your faith, God may still have great plans for you. I'm sure he does. So let's have a look at the letter itself. Um, It begins in verse 7 with um, these words. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Well, let's think about what Jesus is saying about himself here. Firstly, these are the words of him who is holy and true. Now, holiness is a word that is used time and time again in the Bible to describe God. In Isaiah 43, verse 3, for example, it says, I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel. In Revelation chapter 4 verse 8, the living creatures cry out, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We could go through literally dozens of verses in the Bible, but we won't do that today. But what does this word holy actually mean? What does holiness mean? Well, very often we link the idea of holiness to our patterns of behaviour. We live holy lives, meaning we behave in pure ways. Well, I think there's a sense in which that is true, but I think the word holy means more than that. Holiness, as a theological idea, means set apart. So to call God holy 
is not to say that he behaves well. To call God holy means that he is set apart. He is separate from creation. He is not created. He always was from all eternity. So the holiness of God is founded on the fact that he is radically different. He is not the same as us. He is not the same as anything within the created order. He is holy. He is set apart. And in verse 7 we read that he is holy and true. And the same logic applies here. True in this self-description of Jesus means not an imitation. Jesus is saying to the church at Philadelphia, I am God, I am set apart in my authenticity. And in saying that, of course, Jesus is making a claim for authority and power. The Philadelphians would have known all about false gods, particularly in the temple of Dionysius. And Jesus is saying that he is not the same as all these other gods. They are false. They are imitations. They are created. Whereas he is true. He is authentic. He is uncreated and set apart. And in his authenticity, in his uh, set-apartness, lies his authority and his power. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the keys of David. What does that mean? Well, this is an allusion to Isaiah chapter 22, verse 22, where God talks about Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, and he says, I will place on his shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. So who was Eliakim? Well, he was the finance minister to King Hezekiah, and as such was the chief power under the king, and he exercised complete authority in the house of David. And so Eliakim is used here in this passage as a sort of metaphor for Christ, in the same way that Christ elsewhere in the Bible is known as the new Moses or the new Adam. So in a sense, he is the new Eliakim too. All authority has been given to him by the king, his father in heaven, and he holds the keys to the house of David, which is eternal life. And interestingly, the name Eliakim actually means God will establish. So it's through Christ and in the name of Christ that the kingdom of God will be established on earth. These are the words of him who is true and holy, who holds the key of David. But it also says what he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, the idea of a door being either open or shut was a common one in the Bible, and it always relates to the idea of mission and evangelism. In Acts chapter 14, verse 27, Paul and Barnabas are in Antioch, and we read, They gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians 16 verses 8 to 9, Paul says, I will stay on in Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verse 12, Paul writes, Now when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, I found that the Lord had opened a door for me. In Colossians chapter 4 verse 3, Paul says, Pray for us too that God may open a door for our message. So the notion of an open door, or a closed door in scripture has to do with mission and evangelism. So in this letter to the Christians at Philadelphia, 
Jesus is referring to their mission activity, and he's saying that it is he, not them, that has ultimate control over it. He is the Lord of the harvest, and the harvest will be reaped according to his will. And I think there's a deep sense of release for us in that, because it means that we don't have to shoulder the burden or carry the responsibility for mission or church growth. Our task is to proclaim the gospel of Christ, full stop. It is the work of the Holy Spirit to lead others to respond to that message. It's not our responsibility. We just proclaim the message and the Spirit does the work in the hearts of the hearer. All we need to do is remain faithful in proclamation and God will grow his church according to his will. He has the key not us. He opens the doors and no one can close them. He closes other doors and no one can open them. Jesus Christ is the Lord of the harvest and all we have to do is sow the seed and be available to him at harvest time to bring the crop, as it were, into the barns, into the house of David, of which Jesus holds the key. But we must also be mindful that ours is a God who both opens and closes doors as well. And it can be painful for us, I think, when a door of mission has been open for a long time and the Lord closes it. It can be frightening when the Lord opens a new door and we have no idea what will happen if we step through it. Sometimes we get a bit too comfortable, don't we, in our mission and evangelism. We've been doing it in one particular way for a long time and God has blessed that method in the past. But it doesn't mean that he will always bless that method in the future. Or we might have been working with a certain group of people for a long time and we think God will always want us to work with them. But sometimes, you know, God closes doors. Things change. Circumstances change. The resources we have available change. The world changes. So we need to sit lightly to our methods of mission and evangelism and be open to the ending of old ways of doing things and open to new ways of doing things. The Lord can close doors and open new doors for us at any time. He is the Lord of the harvest, and we are his workers, obedient to his will. And Jesus wants to encourage the Philadelphian Christians here in their mission and their evangelism. In verse 8, he says this, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I know your deeds. We've heard that before, haven't we? Jesus said exactly the same thing to the church at Ephesus, and to the church at Thyatira, and to the church at Sardis. And we know, if you've been following this podcast series, uh, the episodes uh, prior to this one, we know that sometimes when he says, I know your deeds, it's been said with love and compassion. And sometimes it's been said with a hint of anger and disappointment. But here in verse 8, we can see that Jesus is showing compassion to the believers at Philadelphia, and he's commending them for their commitment to mission. I know your deeds. I know that you have little strength. Here is a church, a congregation, perhaps small in size, with few resources, uh, struggling in their witness to the world. But Jesus sees them. He knows them, 
and he knows their deeds, and he knows that they're feeling weak and fragile and vulnerable. But he commends them for their faithfulness. You have kept my word and not denied my name. Here was a church that would have had a much easier life if it had sort of gone with the flow of the world around it and taken the easy route, but instead they choose to stay true to Christ despite the difficulties of doing so. And as a result, there is a great promise given to them. I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Even in their weakness and fragility, there is an opportunity for mission, an opportunity that will not be snatched away from them, an opportunity that God is not going to close off to them just because they're too fragile at that time to maximise the opportunity. Our God is gracious and compassionate and patient and he works with us in our weakness. Doors are open to us, but we may not feel able to walk through them right now. But he won't close them. He'll wait for us to be ready. As long as the intention and the desire remains within us and doesn't give way to complacency and apathy. And now we go to verse 9, which is very interesting. Uh, Jesus says this, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Well, what on earth does that mean? Well, it's an allusion, I think, to Isaiah chapter 60, verse 14, where there's a prophecy to the Jews which gave them a real expectation for the future. In Isaiah 60, 14, it says this, The sons of your oppressors will come bowing before you. All who despise you will bow down at your feet and will call you the city of the Lord, Zion of the Holy One of Israel. So the Jews had an expectation that they would remain the chosen people of God and that the Gentiles would one day come and bow before them and give them the glory and the honour. But in this passage from Revelation, Jesus reverses that and he says that the Jews will come and bow down before the Gentile Christians and will give them the glory and the honour. Jesus turns the tables and says that Christians are now also God's people and that those who have rejected him have stepped outside of God's purposes. And then Jesus goes further with his encouragement in verse 10. He says, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on earth. Now, if you listened to the previous episode of this podcast, we thought about Jesus' message to the church at Smyrna, and he told the Christians living there that they would have to endure persecution for a metaphorical period of 10 days. But that's not the same hour of trial that Jesus is talking about here. The time of trial for the Smyrnaeans would be a persecution of them because of their faith. But the hour of trial mentioned here to the Philadelphians is actually coming, as Jesus says, on the whole earth and will test the inhabitants of the earth everywhere. Well, we're going to come across this phrase, the inhabitants of the earth or those who live in the world on two more occasions in the book of Revelation in chapter 6, verse 10 and in chapter 11, verse 10. And on both of those occasions, it refers to those people 
who are enemies of the church, who rejoice in its sufferings and even engage in acts of persecution themselves. And calling it the hour of trial reminds us, I think, of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. In Mark chapter 14, he prays for release if it's God's will. And then in Mark 14, 41, he goes to his sleeping disciples and he says, Are you still sleeping and resting? Enough. The hour has come. Again, a link is then made between this time of testing at the hands of those who hate the church and hate its Christ. And so, because the Philadelphians have patiently endured and remained faithful, they will not experience the visitation of God on them in judgment, which is a fate waiting to befall all those who persecute Christ and the church. And this protection of the true church from judgment is a theme that we will be returning to again in later episodes when we look at chapters 7, 11 and 12. In verse 11, Jesus confirms that he is coming soon, which would have been wonderful news for the Christians in Philadelphia, and it would have encouraged them at a time when they were feeling weak and frail and vulnerable. And Jesus then promises them a crown in the same way that the Christians at Smyrna were offered a crown. So I'm not going to go back over that again this time. If you want to check that out, then go back to the previous uh, podcast episode for the church at Smyrna. But then in verse 12, we have this curious phrase from Christ. He says this, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. That's a really interesting phrase, isn't it? What does it mean? Well, again, we're taken back to the story of Eliakim in Isaiah 22 that we looked at a few moments ago. Eliakim, finance minister, the holder of the key of David, who had authority among the people of Israel. And we thought a little earlier, didn't we, about how Eliakim was a metaphor for Jesus. But here, his story is used in a slightly different way. So let's revisit the prophecy about Eliakim in Isaiah chapter 22, verse 14. But this time, let's read the next sentence as well, see what that says. I will place on Eliakim's shoulder the key to the house of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I will drive him like a peg into a firm place. He will be a seat of honour for the house of his father. So Eliakim will be like a peg in the house of his father. But in the next verse we read, In that day, declares the Lord Almighty, the peg driven into the firm place will give way. It will be sheared off and will fall, and the load hanging on it will be cut down. So Eliakim will be a peg in the house of his father, and the load hanging on him is Israel. But the peg is not strong enough, and the load will fall. But the Philadelphians will not be a peg in the house of their father. They will be a pillar in the temple of God. They will be strong and secure. And there's a permanency about them. Because as we read in Revelation chapter 3 verse 12, never again will God leave the temple. So just as the Philadelphians had been told in verse 9 that they are the true Israel, now they're being assured that the blessings promised to Israel were now the blessings promised to them. But whereas the blessings to Israel had been sheared off, the Philadelphians could rest assured in the permanency of their blessing. And if you ever look at archaeology from that time and that region, you'll see that the pillars in a temple often had inscribed on them the name of the person it was built in honour to. 
And that's the idea that we see here in verse 12. Jesus says, I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven. And I will also write on him my new name. So three names are metaphorically inscribed upon us. The name of God is written on us because we belong to him. The name of the city of God is written on us because that's where we belong. We are citizens of that city. And the new name of Christ is written on us. And what is that name? I have no idea. (laughs) And that's the beauty of it, uh, because Jesus um, will constantly be revealing new things about himself to us from all eternity. So the fact that we don't know his new name now is actually quite exciting, because it means we've got an awful lot more to learn about Jesus into eternity. We can never know everything that there is to know about Jesus. There's always more to be revealed to us, which is symbolised in this new name that we don't know yet. So I think there's a lot of encouragement here for us. God is set apart from us in holiness and authenticity. God is the Lord of the harvest. He opens doors and he closes them. God knows our weakness and our vulnerability in mission and evangelism, but he meets us where we're at and he encourages us. And if we remain faithful to him in mission and evangelism, we are part of the new Israel, the people of God, and we will escape the judgment that is coming to the enemies of God and we will receive the crown of life and we will share in Christ's power and authority in heaven. We are assured that we belong to God, that we are citizens of heaven and that there's waiting for us an eternity of fresh revelations about the person and nature of Jesus Christ. So however weak and vulnerable you might be feeling right now, however difficult you may be finding it to engage in mission and evangelism, take great comfort from this passage. Rejoice that God will strengthen you for the task and will bless you in your efforts here on earth and then in his presence for all eternity. Well, I hope you found this podcast useful. If so, please do click the like button, subscribe or follow. And I look forward to being with you again very soon. Bye bye.